I hope you didn't adjust your radio, because yes, that version of Prokofiev's third piano concerto did sound rather odd, but that's because it was recorded more than 70 years ago, in 1932, at the Abbey Road Studios in London, and the pianist was the composer himself. It's a justifiably famous performance, and also a very lively and eccentric one, which is just as well, because this is a very lively and eccentric piece. But this recording also tells us a lot about the kind of details Prokofiev really wanted in his music, the sort no composer finds it easy to write down, like little tiny twists and turns, accents and throwaway rhythmic riffs, or the very distinctive way Prokofiev uses the pedal, sometimes to smudge the music, more often lifting the pedal so the strings make a dry and plunky sound like a harpsichord. There are moments in this recording when Prokofiev even sounds like one of the great jazz pianists of the period. To me, that sounds more like Art Tatum than Sergei Prokofiev. I called this piece eccentric, by which I meant dramatically eccentric. Prokofiev was a dramatic composer. He wrote lots of operas, ballets and theatre and film scores, and his five piano concertos are dramas too. None of them's an intellectual structure, like a Brahms concerto, for example. They're more like ripping yarns, adventure stories, without words, but with episodes tumbling over one another in the most surprising way. Perhaps we could call this third piano concerto The Pianist's Adventures in Wonderland, an orchestral wonderland. As well as being dramatically eccentric, this piece is also musically eccentric, and eccentric in the most literal way, in the sense of not having a centre. Or, if there is a centre, the musical ideas are constantly spinning outwards from it, scattering in every direction like sparks from a Catherine wheel. Someone once found Prokofiev writing a piece of music by standing on the kitchen table and dropping different sheets of paper onto the kitchen floor. He'd jump on and off the table, rearranging the scattered pages till he could see the music telling the story the way he wanted. Clearly, there was an almost childlike, whimsical, playful quality to this man's imagination. In fact, it was one of his great strengths as a composer. And there's playfulness written all over this third piano concerto, not only in the whole form of the piece, but inside the individual ideas of which it's made.
Nearly the whole of that opening melody is based only on the white notes of the piano. All his life, Prokofiev was fascinated by music so simple it was made only from those seven white notes. There are white note tunes like this all over his works, including several in this concerto, and they're strikingly varied. Some sound like ancient chants, others like oriental tunes. Here's an oriental-sounding one from the last movement of this concerto. Apparently, Prokofiev originally wrote this tune for a string quartet, which was to be based entirely on white notes from beginning to end. He worked on it in Japan on his way to America after fleeing the Russian Revolution, and there's definitely something a little bit Japanesey about it. Japanesey beginning of the last movement of Prokofiev's third piano concerto. The white note tune at the beginning of the first movement has a very different effect, more like a Russian folk tune, which is perhaps not surprising because he wrote it in Russia several years before he went to Japan and America. I spoke of Prokofiev's playfulness, and you can hear it in the harmony especially. It breaks all the rules. Listen to the rich, almost filmic orchestral chords underneath that Russian-style tune. that playfulness within a single idea. But what about the playfulness of the way each idea is followed by the next one? That's so typical of this composer. In a moment, everything changes. The speed, the harmony, the texture, the color. The new idea is like a rude interruption, as though someone had burst through a door without knocking. Before long, the playfulness takes the shape of a head-on confrontation between soloist and orchestra. see the players in music like this, it can sometimes be hard to work out what's going on. The orchestra's busy enough by itself. <music> on
On top of that, the pianist is throwing around chords and colours and splashes of notes like firecrackers, and with precious little respect for what the orchestra's up to. In this music, contrast and quick change so often happen by means of what appear to be the crudest and most outrageous switches. It's something some musical snobs really hate about Prokofiev's music. But the point is, it's deeply based on his own practical, physical experience of music as a live performing art, on his extreme self-awareness of how he played. So, after that noisy piano and orchestral flourish, the soloist is suddenly left all alone and thumping away with something like a slowed-down version of 1920s barrel house music. And what's obviously a dancing rhythm soon takes us into a new tune. This delightful new tune is playful in a new way. Here Prokofiev's playing with one of his favourite classical or baroque dance types, the gavotte. A proper gavotte has four beats in a bar, always starting, as here, on the third beat, as though the dancer were skipping towards the beginning of the next bar. Prokofiev loved this rhythm, and he put gavottes all over the place in his music, in the classical symphony, in ballet music like Romeo and Juliet, and, to delicious effect, here in this concerto. And under the tune, the swooning, drunken, barrel-house accompaniment is still going on in the rest of the orchestra, complete with castanets. This central part of the concerto's first movement is perhaps the most eccentric bit. It spirals away with whimsical and breathtaking virtuosity through a whirligig of changing musical images. In my battered old pocket score at home, some baffled student of long ago has hopefully penciled at the top of the page here the word development, question mark. The question mark's spot on. This isn't a classical development, whatever that means, because there's nothing to develop. Prokofiev's far more interested in having fun. His adventures in Wonderland are carrying him somewhere new. And he's having fun as a performer, too. Naturally, after all, the original purpose of this music was to give himself something spectacular to play with the world's great symphony orchestras. The other musicians get something relatively bland to play. This is definitely a moment for the soloist to shine. 
And since we've got the composer on record, let's listen to how he used to play this passage. Back we come to that white note Russian tune the concerto started with. But this time, instead of leaping off straight away into that back-to-Bach chattering, Prokofiev takes this sweet tune for a walk by itself, and in doing so, shows off a whole other side to his own piano playing. In the right hand, he floats a two-voice version of the melody, and in the left, an almost romantic accompaniment that results like a ghostly memory of a Chopin nocturne. Clarinet, bassoon and lower strings weave a diaphanous web of overlapping voices. What started as one melody has now become many. It's almost like a child's mobile different shapes slowly spinning round and round, each at their own speed. we heard at the beginning of the movement is expanded in this final passage, drawn out, turned into something else. Like the back-to-Bach chattering, it's now the piano that plays it, and it's many bars before it leads us to that lively tune we heard before.
When Prokofiev does get to the tune, he keeps interrupting it with a flashy, impertinent idea. Apparently, this was yet another thought he kept waiting in his notebooks for many years, looking for the right piece to put it in. And when the gavotte comes back, it seems reborn. It's now a march. Not soldiers, mind you, but the circus comes to town. Prokofiev assembled this concerto, and that really does seem the right word for how he composed it, during the spring and summer of 1921 by the seaside in Brittany. Actually, he didn't have much time for writing music as he was spending a lot of this period running around with Diaghilev's ballet or having his portrait painted by Matisse. In May, he was especially busy, but at the end of the month, when it was already hot, he went back to Brittany for a few days' rest, some swimming in the Atlantic, and spending time looking at the peculiar caterpillars crawling all over the bushes in the garden. He made a note in his diary. I took a short break and then sat down to the third piano concerto and polished off the variations. The theme of these second movement variations is yet one more gavotte-like old-world dance number, and it's also another tune Prokofiev wrote several years before in Russia and then took with him when he went to the West in case it came in handy later. This charmingly old-fashioned tune may be neoclassical, but the variations Prokofiev writes on it are not neoclassical at all, they're just Prokofiev. 
And once again, his playfulness and willfulness are much more important than any strict adherence to the original shape of the tune. What he tends to do in each variation is take one or two features of the tune and improvise around them. No surprise that in the first variation, Prokofiev gives the star role to his own piano part. When he gets to that middle phrase for strings and cheeky bassoon, Prokofiev dissolves the harmonies into piano figuration that doesn't sound anything like 18th century music. In the next variation, the orchestra takes over with a vengeance. All thoughts of the 18th century and the neoclassical are left even further behind as a solo trumpet twists the tune into an entirely new character. Over the showman, Prokofiev gives himself something tricky to do in every variation. So in this next one, he starts playing around with the rhythm, pushing the soloist into a different rhythm from the orchestra. Imagine that this was what he first wrote, with the strong beats on the piano together with the cellos and double basses underneath. What he actually does is shift the beat so the pianist is constantly a hiccup ahead of the orchestra. Up to speed, that sounds almost like galumphing cartoon music.
After a slow variation, with the piano getting all the colour and lyrical attention, the last variation is another romp for the piano and orchestra. The gavotte theme charges all over the place. places, the gavotte idea is almost inaudible, covered by all sorts of other versions of itself, not to mention the thunderous piano part. theme comes back, sparklingly decorated by the piano, though Prokofiev still keeps one trick to the very end. Each variation so far has ended with something very distinctive and always the same, a rather perfunctory punctuation mark. That's the musical equivalent of a semicolon, I suppose. But listen to the end of the last variation. This time, it's a definite full stop. I've suggested there's something instinctive, anti-intellectual perhaps, and almost obsessively playful about the way Prokofiev composed and the way he put this piano concerto together. But what I absolutely don't mean by that is that the music's not clear or that it's shapeless. It's crystal clear, giving the impression of something intrinsically beautiful and in a very simple way. In the first movement, we had three highly contrasted ideas, followed by a journey away from them in the middle, and then a return to the same three ideas, now expanded and decorated. Essentially, a three-part form. In the middle, we have this gavotte theme and its five variations, again highly contrasted, and then ending with a reprise of the theme. Now, in the last movement, we have another three-part form, like a sandwich, the outside of that sandwich is based on Prokofiev's white-note Japanesey theme we heard earlier. It dances along in three-time, and as three-time dances tend to, it soon starts sounding like a wild waltz.
other waltz-like ideas keep adding themselves to the Japanesey theme, like the one we just heard, which is also mostly made up of scales of white notes, with only a couple of sideways slips onto the black notes. The orchestral part could easily be from one of Prokofiev's famous ballet scores. The orchestra and the pianist dance deliriously together. And it's the pianist, by the way, who eventually drags the Japanese theme back into the fray. Now it's time for the middle section of the sandwich. The style, the character, once again changes abruptly. In fact, it changes several times, most shockingly to begin with, when Prokofiev gives us an orchestral passage of almost Rachmaninoff-like romanticism. Prokofiev's own crackly recording seems so apt. This is the wistful jazz interlude we heard earlier. It's like one of those extra intense dreams just before waking. To make it even more spectral, a strange and shifting violin phrase keeps floating in on top of the piano part. As the violins repeat this phrase, 
Prokofiev uses the woodwind to echo the piano, one of those moments of startlingly clear orchestration of which he was a great master. It seems simple, but only he could make an orchestra sound quite like this. Then the curious violin phrase blossoms once more into that Rachmaninoff-like music. In many ways, it's pretty shocking, this bit of pseudo-Rachmaninoff, especially if you think of Rachmaninoff as a real late Romantic composer and Prokofiev as a thoroughgoing anti-Romantic. And it's even more shocking when you read in Prokofiev's diaries and letters how horrible he often was about Rachmaninoff. But the truth is, Prokofiev knew the older composer and he loved his music. In his recital programs, he played a lot of Rachmaninoff's shorter numbers, which always went down well with American audiences. And he had a real soft spot for Rachmaninoff's very early first piano concerto. What he liked about that piece was its fruity tunes and the sensuous way the piano part wraps itself around those tunes like ivy. I guess that's what he was thinking of when he wrote this. tune just keeps on twisting and turning, and as it does, the ivy in the piano part becomes ever more tangled and fascinating. All that decadent lushness is followed by yet another shocking shift of character, but after the tangled ivy in the middle section, Prokofiev the piano virtuoso is not letting go now. The solo part gets more and more outrageous and splashy with every page. It's obvious here he was writing a piece he wanted to have a big success with as composer and as performer. 
breathtaking. Even in slow motion, that piano part's a startling challenge. But up to speed, the pianist is taken to the limit. Clever circus performer that he was, the still youthful showman saved his loudest and most outrageous tricks for the closing bars in a preposterous sequence of false orchestral endings, almost like Rossini. At the same time, Prokofiev makes his own piano part, despite the richness of the orchestration. Cut through the sound with electric brilliance. And he ends with a last chord, which is a real thumb your nose at the old fogies in the audience, with woodwinds, strings, timps, and brass combining into this delightfully garish sound. As we'll hear in a moment, the effect of that final chord is startling. In October 1921, Prokofiev, still in Brittany, finally finished orchestrating this third piano concerto and began studying the piano part so he himself could play it. The first performance was to be a couple of months later in America. In fact, he gave two performances. The first was on the afternoon of Friday the 16th of December. That night, he noted in his ever-detailed diary, The hall was full. It's always full on a Friday afternoon, and they applauded enthusiastically, notwithstanding the fact that most of them were white-gloved ladies. He wrote those last sarcastic words in English, a language he spoke fluently. The next evening, on the Saturday, he played the piece again, and this time his diary entry reads, Top marks for the way I played. And it was a bigger success than yesterday, which is only natural because in the evening you get more men in the audience and they clap more loudly. Prokofiev was a natural performer. Every time he wrote a note of music down on a piece of paper, he knew how he wanted the audience to react.